Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Today, we're excited to introduce you to Vlad Tropko. GP of Digital Horizon, a multi-stage VC fund investing in immigrant founders globally, but with a special focus on Europe. Vlad is a seasoned VC slash PE executive with over 15 years of experience investing in Europe and American startups. Vlad has closed more than 50 deals and is an active member of international VC communities like On Deck Fintech, Two Hearts and Alma Angels. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Vlad, welcome to the show. It's great having you here at the UVC. How are you today? David Andres, hi to everybody. Thank you for having me here. I'm fine and happy to be here. So before we start, I always like to ask the same thing, which is tell us a bit about yourself. Tell us about your journey into VC and what is Digital Horizon's origin story? Because that's super interesting. So uh, I was born and breathed in Russia. In uh, I was born in Siberia, then, then grew in Russia. From the crisis of 2008, I was involved in high tech and, and VC activity. So worked for a bunch of VCs and private equity funds, which were focused on investing in high tech across the world. So from that time, I invested in more than 50 deals across US, Israel, and Europe. Around three years ago, we started from scratch Digital Horizon. And nowadays, at Digital Horizon, we have 350 million USD under management under a couple of structures, which includes a VC fund, which focused on fintech and B2B software startups founded by immigrants, primarily across Europe and Israel, but from time to time we invest in across globe as well. Additional vehicle which we have is pre-IPO syndicates, where we bring a lot of our LPs, future and current, into the late stage deals. And the third activity is Venture Builder, where we build companies from scratch, we have a different business models in the venture builder. So we can work with the corporates and propose to them venture as a service model, or we can build companies from scratch with our own ideas. So Digital Horizon right now, we have a three offices, London, Dubai, and Tel Aviv. Uh, and, and our team split it between uh, the three areas. Yeah. So Vlad, before we continue with the topics that we had planned, you know, there is something that we have to ask you and we'd love to have your view as well. You know, given the current geopolitical landscape, you know, many players in the VC industry are now scrambling to assess what is the impact of these confrontations in the industry. And given, you know, your origin as an individual, I'd love to have your thoughts and reflections of what you think this will mean for the industry in Europe. I personally was born in Russia, but a significant portion of my family was born in, in Ukraine and still are there. So this kind of geopolitical situation is make me really sad. 
what we see right now is that number of immigrants are growing tremendously. So during last months, we see that around 2 millions of Ukrainians are moving to Poland. What I'm seeing around me, so around half a million of Russians are also moving from Russia to other countries. And most of those people are high-skilled IT specs. So it's a huge uh, punch to the economy future of, of both countries. And uh, all the situation is very sad. And Vlad, I think that this is actually, given that your fund has a focus on immigrants, it's that's exactly what you're investing in. I think this is the greatest segue we could get into that because this crisis is, of course, going to spawn a lot of immigrants, as we also talked about before the show. And I'd love to hear more about why it is that you are so passionate about immigrant founders and also what impacts that has to your investment model and your operational day-to-day in your firm. So if I'm speaking about immigrants in general, what we've seen during last 20 years is that around uh, half or, or even 60% of NASDAQ valuation was built by immigrant founders. And during last three to eight years, uh, U.S. has a significant issues with uh, their immigration policies. That's why when we started our fund, we decided to focus on Europe and Israel as the place for immigration. So, and what we are seeing right now is that UK is uh, decreasing a number of dogs which you need to receive a talent visa and immigrate to UK. So, and, and different European countries are doing the same. So, it's mean that more and more very uh, high-skilled people will go there. From another point of view, those people who are wishing to be entrepreneur in the new countries, they have a much higher motivation than the local people. I saw some uh, recent statistics about UK. In the UK, if I'm speaking about the unicorns, about half of the founders were immigrants from different countries. Russian was number one, US was number two, etc., etc. So uh, motivation, high skills, and also the third part, which is very important, is that most of those people are outsourcing a lot of their services to their home country. And it means that those startups can build products much cheaper than comparing to their local competitors. In addition to this, I need to notice that motivation, cost, and evaluation is the major triggers for us to focus on those kind of founders. We love them and we understand how to work out with them. Last time we spoke, I remember we had an interesting conversation around it's one thing that immigrants have strong motivation, but they've also come through times that have been tough, especially if they're first generation. And that has given them quite some grit. And I'm curious to understand, when do you see that grit kick in? (laughs) And also, when in the lifetime of an immigrant are they fit to do a startup in the sense that it's likely not the first thing you're going to think of when you come to a new country? Is it more like five years after they first immigrated that you see that this is the sweet spot for, for founders to originate? Do you see anything there? It really depends. So from what we have seen is that some of the immigrants, they had a business in local countries. They sold it and have some money to move to a new country. A year or two after this immigration is a really great time to start a new startup. I always said that you could not build a good startup if your wife and children are not happy. It's really tough for you from the mental health perspective. Within the one or two years after immigration, deal are done and you can fully focus on a new journey. 
how is your deal sourcing setup built? You know, you don't go into just a random incubator looking for <laughs> for immigrants. How do you do it? <laughs> we are working closely with diasporas. So we have a good connections with the Jewish and Russian-speaking diasporas from one side. From another side, immigrants from different countries are working together and, and chatting a lot. And what we've seen right now that we have a quite unique proposition on European market for immigrants. A lot of our founders, I mean, of the founders in which we invested, they bring in other founders and it's very good deal flow for us. Might feel a bit of an outdated topic, <laughs> but I am interested because you guys have a, a strong footprint in London and the UK. Uh, another geopolitical event that we saw recently was Brexit. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that because many would argue that, you know, London, which was, you know, the, the place to go <laughs> for most immigrants and expats, generally speaking, now no longer is that. And then people are talking about other hotspots like Amsterdam, among others, right? So I'd love to have your reflections on that as well. So from a statistical point of view, nothing happens significantly. I mean, the share of uh, UK is still quite high. But what we've seen that during the COVID, uh, a lot of small cities arrive uh, on the market map. So uh, I don't know, you can build a company from Czech Republic, from Romania or whatever. But, yeah. uh, but still, uh, when you need a lot of money for your growth, you have to be at London or, or move to US. And by the way, if uh, during last two years, you probably saw that a lot of US funds arrived to Europe, I think 100% of them are arriving to London as the first place to live and, and work. So for me, it means that this kind of base would be still uh, be major one for all the growth stage and uh, mid-stage companies. But on early stage, on seed or pre-seed, you can start it from any place in the world. Nowadays, what we've seen that all the funds are ready to invest all across the globe if they see a talented people. So the rule of one hour by bike is not working anymore. On the uh, earlier stage of your activities, you're on the venture builder side. Are you guys doing that because you have somewhat of a geographical spread with your three offices? Is that all in person? Is that done remotely? How do you guys manage that? It's quite a difficult question because we have a mixed model. Most of the founders are based right now in London, but they outsource some of their activities to the different countries. But it works quite well for now. We have another topic that we want to deep dive into and this one. I personally find super interesting, <laughs> which is very much connected to the development of Digital Horizons investment strategy and what we like to call the hustle tactics to start a VC or to start as a VC. And so for our audience, uh, what I mean here is that you guys started using a later stage pre-IPO strategy. You kind of shed some light into that in your intro that kind of also function as a trigger to get earlier stage deal flow. So I'd love to have you expand on this for our audience to get an understanding of, you know, how your investment strategy developed over time and why you did it this way. When we started, we were thinking about the early stage fund. We started to invest mostly on A and B rounds. But later on, we understand that if we will go in this direction directly, it would be quite hard to show uh, good numbers very fast to fundraise fund number two. Most of the people are thinking that the hardest fundraising is fund number one, but no, the hardest fundraising is fund number two or three, because in most cases, you don't have enough statistics to show to the institutional LPs that numbers are good enough. So that's why we decided to add into our strategy later stage deals 
and it shows very promising results because after two and a half years of operations, we have two IPOs in our portfolio, very successful, and we almost returned the whole one fund after two years of operations. It's a remarkable result comparing to most of the market. We are joking that uh, after we set up this kind of multi-stage uh, strategy, Sequoia decided to move after us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm curious though, because building something that's pre-IPO, very late stage versus early stage is different. It's two different things. It requires different mindsets and different skill sets. I'm curious to hear what your reflections were around this and have you come to find late stage and pre-IPO as exciting for you as an individual as early stage? For me personally, I mostly focused on A-B rounds, so early stage startups, but we have a separate partners who are focused mostly on a later stage. So we decide to split our team in, in this kind of sub-teams. This helps us to be focused and work with the founders, quite frankly and openly. Because one of the things which we sell to our early stage startups is that those guys can work with our later stage companies because the, uh, the procurement there is much lower than in Barclays or in JP Morgan. And they're growing much faster than the rest of the market. I'm actually curious then, Vlad, to dive into your decision-making as a firm. Um, because when you are spread across so many stages, you have... And you also operationally focus on each each your own shop almost. How do you make this, the investment decisions? How do you also split both the allocation? So your full fund, how much goes to one end and the other? How do you conduct those conversations inside the team and decisions? So we decided that split between early stage and, and late stage 50-50. But in early stage, we reserve additional capital for follow-ons. And, uh, and it works quite well. Currently, we have six partners. Each has a vote, except the person who brings the ticket. So it means that five out of six can vote and the majority is making decision. Interesting. And how do you get the late stage guys to grasp the early stage game and, and vice versa? I can't help but think that it is different. We discuss a lot of things together. After three years of operations, we, we understand each other. So what we can approve and what we could not. In the end of the day, it works quite well. So we have a trust to each other. And sometimes later stage guys are bringing to the table some questions which early stage people uh, don't think about. And this kind of exchange of different views is very helpful. And how does your venture builder model play into all this? Does your early stage team look at venture builder deals and say, do we want to invest in this or is it separate entities and you never invest in your own deals? <laughs> Right now, it's a separate entity, so it's a mostly separate team. We always said that we have some sort of right of first refusal. We are trying to avoid it and try to give enough room to the third parties and, and don't have a, a conflict between our LPs in the venture builder and the, our LPs in the fund. That's the perfect segue to what I wanted to ask you, <laughs> which is talking a bit about LPs because you end up having this, you know, this crossover or hybrid approach, uh, whatever we want to call it. That means that you're getting exposure to the different stages. How does that impact your uh, relationship with LPs? And are you seeing different profiles of LPs having more interest towards different parts of your strategy, right? It'd be really interesting to understand that. Exactly. Some LPs are focused on high liquidity. I mean, the company should go to IPO or, or being sold within 24 or 48 months. 
Some LPs are ready to wait for tens of years. For different LPs, we are proposing different things. And historically, in, in our first fund, we were working with families and high net worth individuals. But uh, currently, we are starting to work with institutions. Am I right to say that institutionals are more relevant for your early stage activity? Or am I completely off there? No, no, no. I think uh, institutions, they have a bunch of buckets. So they have a buckets of late stage, they have buckets of early stage. We give them opportunity to co-invest with us on each of their buckets yeah. from right. one side. But to have an opportunity to co-invest with us, they need to be an OLP in, in the core fund. Do you see any, and I think this is a really interesting topic, thus the context that I'm giving to it, because many of our listeners, as you know, are emerging VCs. So they are either raising for a first-time fund, second-time fund, or thinking about it. Thus, this question, which is, do you see any kind of trends in the sense of different profiles gravitating towards different parts of your strategy and or different geographies of LPs gravitating towards different parts of your strategy? Are you able to take out any insights so far? If I'm speaking about European LPs, they're very conservative. They're mostly focused on private equity approach. So that's why we're, we're proposing to those guys later stage tickets. It's much, much easier for them to understand and invest into late stage rather than early stage. If I'm speaking about the government institutions of uh, UK or Europe, I mean EIF or BBB, yep. they are mostly deploying their capital in early stage funds. But from the emerging VC managers, I think the democratization is here. So you can be a student and know that your, a couple of your friends are raising funds and raise a syndicate for them. Right now, it's quite cheap and you can build your track record on syndicates rather than trying to raise, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 million funds. And by the way, one of the key things which I opened up after, I don't know, dozens of years in VC, if you are going in to invest into early stage startups, you have to be quite rich. I mean, because your first carry will, will come in eight or 10 years from now, so or maybe 12. I know a, a lot, a huge amount of people in the VC market who didn't receive a carry after 15 years. It's a remarkably long-term game. And uh, again, your wife could not wait until uh, you will buy her house or car for 10 years in most cases. I'm trying to lead her on that uh, <laughs> that just another year and it'll come, baby. Don't worry. <laughs> I actually would love to dive a bit into that point that you just made with hacking your way in through syndicates because we are right now designing a program for all these aspiring managers that are breaking their in way in through syndicates. So I'd love to just dive in here and also talk to you about your own track record there and also your teams, because I'm, I'm sure that many around you have employed exactly that strategy. And it's also a bit what you're doing with your own fund, right? That it's one thing that you have your core fund, but you're doing a lot of syndicates for the LPs that then co-invest with you. If we're speaking about the syndicates, we're doing a lot of this. People will trust you if they will earn with you. So in late stage syndicates, it's much faster uh, learning curve with you. So because when the early stage startup have a markup, uh, you're still five, seven, ten years from, from the real money on your bank account. But in late stage, you can uh, easily sell secondaries within the one or two years and uh, markup 30, 50, 60 or a couple of hundred percent after a couple of years. This gives a lot of trust from, from your LPs to you, and they're ready to open their pockets to invest together. 
into the fund or more in, in particular deals. That's a very interesting approach and actually something that runs contrary to much of what we usually say, because what we usually say is focus on your thesis, prove that your thesis works. And that means that if you want to be a seed stage investor, do seed investments or do pre-seed investments. What you're saying here is, nah, on the LP side, it's actually more important that you start building trust and you can't build trust without fattening their wallets and showing that they can actually get money out of a partnership with you. And as such, you need to start out doing late stage deals because that's where you can get that money quite quickly. I think that's a very interesting approach. It really depends from the profile of investor. So I know that from time to time, founders are raising money from founders. They are ready to deploy and wait for tens of years. If we're speaking about the standard family office who are for tens of years investing into the deposits or into the bonds, it's much harder to build a trust with them without bringing them profit. I'm curious, Vlad, do you see yourselves always having the structure of, uh, and also in your next fund, you're on first fund now, and you'll soon start racing for the next one. I'm curious to hear, are you sticking to the 50-50 split and are you sticking to having it in one vehicle, early stage and growth together? Or how do you think about this? We're right now fundraising fund number two. We decided to stay in the same multi-stage vehicle for the whole fund. And the idea is that we can return 1x for the fund within three to four years and then increase the multiple within the next six or 10 years later on. But the LPs would be happy because they will return the money very fast. That's the idea. So regarding the split of the money inside of the fund, we are thinking that split between uh, in number of companies would be 50-50, but uh, in the capital it should be something like 40 to 60. So 60% will go to late stage and 40 to early stage. But I need to tell you that within this kind of 60% of late stage, portion of the capital will go into the, our early stage portfolio later on. So as, as a follow-on. Very interesting. So this, I imagine, works very well with family offices, as you say. But how about the more institutional players that you're starting to talk to now for the bigger fund too? I imagine that they are having a bit of a difficult time figuring out exactly which bucket they should place you in. We are working with a couple of them and uh, most of them are ready to think out of the box. It's quite standard sales game. So some are thinking within the box and uh, we could not take their money, but some are ready to deploy capital more widely. If we are speaking now about the hedge funds or about some large institutions, they are wishing to invest early on, but they don't have any capacity. That's why we can be some sort of feeder fund for them and later on co-invest with them on the on later stage. Final question before we go to the quick fire round. I'd love to hear a bit about your value add. What is your proposition to founders? So why do the founders pick you? So we are focused on immigrants. We know how to be immigrants because a significant portion of our team are immigrants, first point. We know how to be and then how to help immigrants within their new countries. We're proposing services from our venture builder. We have around 100 people around the globe who are software developers, marketers, business etc. who can help to build the product and grow it for the founders. And and third, we are doing very fast decisions. So uh, I think our fastest decision was within one week after we, we first met uh, the founder. 
the three key areas where we're helping and what we are doing together with the founder. In addition to this, of course, we're doing a lot of introductions to the next stage VC funds because as the multi-stage, we know both spectrum, both pre-seed and growth stage guys. Also, we know a lot of people who can help with the hiring, etc., etc., all around the globe and can open the doors to the, some corporates. Vlad, we always end our episodes with a quick fire round, and that is quick answer questions where we ask you to answer in 30 to 60 seconds each one. Are you ready? Yes. So first question, in fintech, what areas excite you the most that other people don't really feel that excited about? I love infrastructure, so all kind of payments, KYC, KYB, service providers. People are trying to focus right now on Web3. It will be a huge, but later on. Yeah. yeah. Second question of the quick fire: What would be your top tips for emerging VCs in Europe who are fundraising? Asking for money to each person which you meet. Trying to find the LP in each person who are not, not far from you. It can be your family, it can be your friends, any founder not far from you, or GP from the VC fund. All the people are ready to deploy their capital if they like you. Yeah. Third and final question of the quick fire round, which is what can we expect in the future from Vlad, but also Digital Horizon? We will continue our effort for second fund. We will also continue to increase our focus on the global deals. So we, we just closed a couple of deals in Indonesia and India. So we are trying to be more and more globally. Awesome, Vlad. Thank you for joining us today. We really enjoyed having you at the UVC and we hope to talk with you again soon. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.